company could choose whatever business plan that they want to choose, but they can't subsidize it on the backs of the pilots. You're listening to the Alaska Pilots Podcast. Welcome fellow pilots and other podcast listeners to another episode of the Alaska Pilots Podcast. I'm your host, Strategic Communications Chairman, David Campbell. And today I've got Will McQuillan, our MEC Chairman, and Chris Gruner, Negotiating Committee Chairman. A lot has happened in the last week, and in the course of meeting with you out in the field on the West Coast cookout tour and direct feedback to the reps, we've heard from a lot of you on a a number of significant issues. In particular, the state of negotiations a few weeks ago on scope, and of course, to last week's email from the VP of Labor and those of you based in San Francisco, there's ongoing lack of clarity about what's going to happen to the base. We know that's a significant issue, and and we have some things to talk about that today as well. This podcast will focus on those issues, but I want to let you know right at the top that following this week's negotiation session, you will be hearing directly from the negotiating committee on the state of negotiations. Will, you always do a good job at summarizing things off the top. How do things look from your point of view? Yeah, thanks, David. And and I think that this could sound uh, like a lengthy kind of uh, an intro, but I'll just summarize by starting out that we're very frustrated and very frustrated with the company on the state of negotiations, obviously. But uh, to be perfectly honest, you know, while we hoped that things would be different, we hoped for more, um, especially with the leadership change. We, you know, we did plan for this. You go back as far as the, the uh, strategic plan that we crafted in 2018 and then that we revisited and reworked going into negotiations this year. Um, we had planned for for this. Uh, unfortunately, it looks like the company's returned to the familiar tactics of assuming, uh, especially that Alpa doesn't speak for the pilot group, and that you somehow have these different expectations than what we've told them time and time again, you know, expectations that are necessary to reach an agreement. Um, they truly believe this, that that somehow we set expectations of the pilot group and that we're not speaking for you and on your behalf and speaking truly to what your expectations and needs are. Uh, I've had that circular argument with Brad Tilden several times. And I would just also say that there's just absolutely no excuse for not being able to reach a timely agreement on the issues that we're talking about here, the issues that are important to you. The rest of the industry has provided a template. And what we're asking for isn't out of line with what others in the industry have, market rate, standard, very clear paths to success, especially when it comes to scope and scheduling flexibility. And yet, instead of serious bargaining with your negotiating committee, um, the company's attempt to negotiate with the pilots and diminish expectations is just completely unacceptable. There are just so many things wrong with that letter that we received last week from the VP of Labor that, I mean, I could just go on for hours, but suffice to say, I share the anger and the frustration that I feel from this pilot group. Yeah, you know, Will, the preamble of the CBA says that pilots should enjoy a high standard of living and job security. The pilots have told the company clearly that right now they don't feel like they have either one of those things. And so what's really frustrating here is that instead of listening to the pilots who have told the company the same thing since prior to the JCBA, that these are our primary concerns and we expect these issues to be handled like our peers. Instead, the company has doubled down on, you know, not being willing to adequately address your primary concerns. 
Yeah, and there's a couple of things that that I think are equally frustrating is that they do hear this echoed in the exit interviews that they conduct with pilots who are leaving. We're hearing the exact same thing um, that this company doesn't get it, and that you know there's clear lacking job security and work rules, um, and and in particular scheduling, and it's not a commuter friendly airline. Um, I don't think that they have recognized that this airline and that this pilot group has changed. They can't claim to have unique needs compared to their competitors anymore. They just can't. Yeah, you know, and, and that's interesting too. I mean, when you take a look at the company's proposals on scheduling, for example, I mean, they are chock full of offsets and what we've come to call in the committee is uh, Alaska discounts. You know, so nothing there is straight down the plate. You know, so when you really look and see what they're willing to give us, you know, it's got a, a, a give somewhere else. And it's been clear that, you know, this scheduling system is nowhere near where it needs to be. And it's going to take some effort and some resources to get it where it needs to go. And you can make some false comparisons. I mean, for example, the company, you know, takes a look at Southwest and they look at the crews that they have per airplane. And, you know, that's a good number to strive towards, but a big reason they can make that happen is because they have a network that supports that. So Alaska, we have a different network. And now what the company wants to do is to squeeze the rest of that productivity out of you through your CBA. And that's completely unacceptable. The pilots have made it clear that, I mean, the company could choose whatever business plan that they want to choose, but they can't subsidize it on the backs of the pilots. And I think what you're saying there in many ways, Chris, kind of echoes what we've always seen, that the company it advances its own goals but ignores or falls short when it's time to kind of address ours. And, you know, that's simply not going to work in this environment. Yeah, a good example of that would be a cancellation makeup. So 25U, we actually made significant progress to get it close to where the industry's at, which of all of the proposals, I mean, this is the most straight down the line, you know, almost everybody does it exactly the same way. You know, you have one contactability window for a certain length of time and uh, we were getting close and then the company backtracked. So it's, you know, perplexing to us. There's a model. The industry does things a certain way. It works for other people. Why doesn't it work for Alaska Airlines? And, and I think that the only thing that changed from that original proposal to what was brought in this last week was the time period during the pandemic and a couple of events that produce strain. You know, when you talk about snowstorms or a heat wave or something like that, there seems to be contingency planning for worst case scenarios that happen so, so seldom. And that drives that desire for the Alaska discount, which is, is puzzling because other airlines seem to do just fine without those safety nets in place, if you will. Yeah. And you, you know, that's a good point. Well, scope proposal here is a perfect example of that. The proposal we gave the company is balanced, it's fair, and it's tailored to the company's stated business plan. I think that's important, the company's stated business plan. So the company then responded to us with a proposal that failed to address even your most basic concerns. But I think here it's important to point out a few facts. So first of all, after the JCBA award, remember that was based on the company's desire to grow at six to eight percent, right, to remain competitive. What we actually saw then was a mainline growth of only 3% on average from 2017 to 2019. Uh, regional aircraft, by the way, at the time, grew at 12%. Also, what we've seen is a change in 
their business plan and how they're running things. So, you know, initially they said they want to feed Alaska Airlines mainline. They want to develop new routes. But now they've admitted that they're going to stick with frequency on routes where that could handle a mainline. So these established routes in California, they're just saying, well, we want frequency now. We're not going to put mainline aircraft on there. We're going to replace them with more frequency on regional. I want to highlight that difference because that... I mean, as I hear you say that, it, it feels like the last nail on the coffin of this idea of don't worry about scope. We'll treat you as if you have it. And and that's, you know, it's really, it, there've been a couple departures from that school of thought. And that's an important one, I think. Yeah. You know, and I think in other words, right, the company expects the pilots here to accept vague assurances of our futures. And even just looking outside your window when you're in Anchorage or you're in San Francisco, you can see a dramatic increase in the flying that Horizon and SkyWest is doing, you know, compared to what they used to do and what we used to call our flying. Um, so a lot of it's in our hubs and established routes. And that's not to mention, right, the increase in the weight of the aircraft that they're flying, you know, no longer flying 86,000 pound RJs like everybody else. They've increased that to 89,000 pounds. And so that's just a foot in the door. Like we don't know what's coming next. And the bottom line is, is that we have no way to make sure that our flying is protected right now. We just have to trust them. And I think as we've seen here, we're going to need more than that. We're going to need something written down and assurances that our careers are indeed, you know, part of the growth and the success of this company. You know, and I think, Chris, that what you just said in many ways about scope just reinforces, as we've said, this idea that they need something special. They need a discount to their peers in order to compete effectively. This idea of adding frequency in regional jet growth instead of mainline growth that in them impacts the overall schedule and really makes it absolutely impossible for them to achieve the productivity and the numbers that they seem to be seeking in a Southwest-like model, right? I mean, they just they need to stop assuming that the narrative that we will work at a discount to other peer airlines resonates. It just doesn't. Nobody's buying it. And, and frankly, it's insulting to this pilot group and the professionalism that's been demonstrated time and time again in making this airline successful when they continue to peddle that narrative. Yeah, that's right, Will. And you know, we talked about this in the very last podcast episode where I warned about this idea that the management has this uncanny ability to create a narrative that they can't make any changes to the contract because it's going to affect growth. And growth is really the only thing that matters. And of course, what that growth looks like to a pilot, it can be different to a, a corporate structured growth. And so, um, and you know, here it is, we, we see it just a, a few weeks later. Yep. The carrot of growth was clearly dangled right there. Yeah. And every time the number, the threshold, the reason you can't grow, it always changes, but there's always that carrot of growth that somehow if we don't have a discount to our peers, growth is not on the horizon. And frankly, if it makes business sense, for them to grow or to execute on a strategy, they're going to do it regardless of what our CBA looks like. Absolutely. That conversation we were having about growth versus contract improvements was on, as I said, the last podcast episode published on June 12th. And you can find it at the 23 and 42nd minute mark. But I think it's valuable enough that I'd like to just play that clip right now. It is. And, you know, I brought this up on a podcast not too long ago, and I think it's worth repeating is that 
often there's there's uncanny ability for management to always find a reason not to agree to improvements to a contract. And one of those common ones is this this notion of growth that we need these concessions from you or we are not going to be able to make these improvements so that we can grow and without them we can't grow and you know joe you were talking about that a, a minute ago and i feel pretty confident speaking on behalf of the mec to say that we will not sacrifice the profession on the altar of growth and more to the point we don't need to that is a false choice and and it's there is no reason that you can't have both. Yeah, that's a that's a straw man argument. I mean, if if you stop and think about it, even for a minute, if there are business opportunities out there for this airline, they're going to go after them because that's what businesses do. You know, if there's an opportunity, you pursue it. And the idea that they're somehow not going to pursue business opportunities because we want to see some basic improvements and get a market rate uh, contract is just absurd. Uh, even on the face of it, it doesn't. It just doesn't hold water. Well, I'll call it what it is. It's a tired talking point. We've it seen it dangled in front of us for years. Absolutely. I've been here 15 years, and they can ask anybody junior or senior to me, and they've seen that exact same carrot dangled with very different numbers baked into it every single time. But we can't do this. We can't grow. Um, and you know what's meaningful to our pilots is growth, but it's also security that, that you'll participate in that growth. And that's what the, the scope argument, of course, is all about. You know, just like our own personal budgets, right? Where the company spends their money, that's where their values are placed, and you know what they uh, put as uh, their primary importance. So, during the JCBA uh, arbitration, we know the company argued that they needed was eight percent growth in order to remain competitive, and then the arbitrator largely gave them an award that allowed them to achieve that. And so, what we saw instead was almost flat mainline growth, huge amounts of regional growth out of that. And then also a large amount, and I think it was record-setting uh, dividends and um, shareholder buybacks, if I'm not mistaken. So all we're asking for here is to have the company put a priority on their pilots and start taking care of some of the concerns that we've been articulating for years. So that was from the last episode, and I think we described pretty well what's not going to work to reach an agreement. Will, what do you think is a more appropriate way? You know, and David, I'm going to kind of double back on what we hear all the time from Chris and from the negotiating committee that, you know, the path to an agreement lies in meaningful problem solving and earnest bargaining. And, and when you see such a public disregard of your priorities, it just amplifies the reason that we've told you for months that we need to unify and for, for the pilot group to stay engaged. You know, and I think along those lines, Will, too, it's important to point out that over the last several months, um, We've worked really hard to put the company position where they clarified what their positions are. So we pressed them hard on scope and made sure that they were clear on what their positions were there. And then these last two weeks, we've pressed them on scheduling to make sure that those positions were clear. And so now they've come out and told us, and like you said, Will, it is completely unacceptable. And, uh, you know, the negotiating committee, me, Rob, and Drew have been uh, negotiating in good faith the whole way. We'll continue to do so. But it is uh, incredibly frustrating to know uh, now that the company's positions are unacceptable. And I think that maybe some of the pilot group's emotional response to that letter that they received is completely understandable. I think it, it goes without saying just to, again, assure everybody that we planned for this. Uh, we saw this as a possibility going as far back as 2018 when we we crafted the original Safeguard Our Future campaign. 
Um, and we knew this landscape was likely. You know, the leopards don't change their spots and it was typical that we'd probably end up right where we are. Um, in fact, we anticipated uh, that we would need to get in front of the MEC to approve those next steps, but we'd really hoped that it wouldn't be until late August. And, and as was noted, you know, we've moved the, uh, the MEC meeting forward, which is no small logistical task, to get the MEC approval for the plan to move ahead and to get the company to address your concerns and move in a much more timely manner. Yeah, and I think that's important too. So we've been thinking about what we would need to do in case the company didn't move. So we're going to go get approval for those next steps uh, coming up here in the next few weeks. And just want to make it clear to all of you, um, we're not just going to let the company stall and not address these concerns. Yep. And, and I know pilots want to know. We get those questions all the time, what those next strategies are. And I'll assure you that we have an aggressive plan, but it does need the MEC vetting and it needs the MEC approval. And, you know, honestly, that discussion does need to wait until our current cycle of negotiations, this two weeks that we're now completing, concludes and the MEC can like fully assess the landscape and our next steps. Yeah, you know, Will, it's interesting. I was looking over last night at some of those old videos from 2018 and where Joe and Chewy made that, that first video that was a real change in tone in what we were talking about. And it was a result of the SWOT analysis we had done. And it's really where the that whole slogan and notion of we need to safeguard our future grew out of. And it's I'll say it's, it's uh, disappointing that what was true then seems just as true today, despite all of the changes that have occurred since then. We, we still have to safeguard our future from the, you know, the same corporate idea of we need to work at a discount. Yep, no, absolutely. And you would think that we had painted a, a very, very clear picture of what could be and in terms of success and in terms of success in working directly with union leadership and with especially with our committee structure. It is very, very frustrating that we really shouldn't be fighting a lot of the same battles. And you don't have to look too far to, to look at where we are continuing to fight those battles. You know, it started with them trying to make unilateral changes to the pairing construction rules for our schedules, right? Then vacation taking away the vacation open time that's now in a grievance, right? To try and resolve as opposed to coming and having a discussion with us about what their concerns were. They've never approached us that way. It took, what, a full eight months to get an arbitrator's ruling on door closure, to get that language incorporated into the FOM as the arbitrator ruled. And it really only happened after we threatened that we would seek injunctive relief. It's just frustrating. And, you know, um, we're now also seeing that and that we've been advocating tirelessly over the system bids, for example. I know we've talked about this on nearly every podcast, but we, we knew what it would take to position us for success this summer so that the pilot group wouldn't be operating under the stress that we currently are operating under, both with reserve fatigue and ramp delays and everything else that we've seen. There was an opportunity to fix it but not a willingness to uh, to engage with us constructively on it. And then, you know, most recently, and I think we'll talk about it here in a second, is to address the issue of us seeking clarity on the San Francisco base and what the future of that base looks like and giving the pilots in that base some certainty and clarity so they can plan their lives. You know, in all of these cases, it feels like, you know, they fought us on it and delayed forever 
in terms of you know finally reaching the same conclusion that should have been reached if they approached us constructively. So let's talk about San Francisco. That's been a, an ongoing concern and it's created a lot of uh, frustration and anxiety for certainly those living in and or commuting into San Francisco. And I know on the MEC level, a lot of work has been done on that, but it's it's been a little bit behind the scenes. So let's bring that a little, so let's bring that out with a little bit more detail, Will, and, and fill us in on what's been going on. Yep, no, certainly. Um, I know in previous podcasts that we've discussed you know, our advocacy to the company on the issue, you know, again, that they need to provide clarity and certainty to the pilots on the future plans for that base. But uh, that advocacy was taken directly to the company. And in fact, last week in a meeting with uh, myself, Jim Tedford, Scott Rubin, uh, the entire scheduling committee, as well as uh, Ronan O'Donohue, who provided some really valuable insights into the base and the base modeling that the company is considering. And you know, one of the, the strongest points that we made was that San Fran needs to be part of their future and that they need to communicate that very clearly to the pilots. They need to be absolute on that fact. Um, you know, They've been modeling a number of scenarios for all bases and all fleet mixes, and uh, the union has not been standing by, by the way. Uh, we've been taking our time and doing our own work to evaluate that future. Uh, in particular, the scheduling committee undertook its own independent study to evaluate the viability of San Francisco as a base if Alaska had a single fleet. Um, and some of the details, modeling was based off of pre-pandemic block hours as well as current recovery block hours, and we, we baked in some conservative growth assumptions. Um, it's something that the company has indicated is also the basis for their, their own modeling. And I guess I won't bury the lead here, but our own proactive study shows that San Francisco is indeed viable as a standalone base in a single fleet scenario. And uh, I think maybe the easiest way is if I read the conclusion to the, to the scheduling committee's uh, report, the ALPA single fleet study shows that San Francisco is a viable base once the volume of mainline departures returns, especially considering the pent up demand that has not been realized until the state reopened. Uh, Alaska has noted these strong future bookings and that they are becoming reality. We are confident in the need for San Francisco due to the monthly cost savings to the company. There is a reduction in overall system soft time with that base operating. And then I think when it comes to the, uh, the question that's on many pilots' minds, you know, what does it mean when it comes to Airbus versus Boeing in the Bay? Hey, Will, you keep saying single fleet scenario. By that, you mean single fleet based in San Francisco, right? Not a right. company single. Right, that exactly. That even though we know that there will be a number of Airbus aircraft around, and as a matter of fact, there'll be a lot more of them around through uh, 2022, at least probably Q1 of um, 2023, that you know there, there'll be Airbus in the mix. But with San Francisco operating with either a pure Airbus mix or a pure Boeing mix, it's proven that the, the base is viable, at least in our modeling. That's good to know. Again, the conclusion to the uh, scheduling committee's report, uh, with the company's apparent pivot to not only retain Airbus aircraft, but increase the number of jets pulled from storage, we are encouraged that in the near term, San Francisco will be viable as an Airbus base. So again, I think that it, the, the crew's base there can at least take to heart that through 2022, they have some certainty. And then whether that shifts to remain as an 
all Airbus space or if they shift to a Boeing, you know, fleet centric kind of a strategy that they'll have some certainty. Right. Um, they do. Company has noted that they intend to further reduce the Airbus fleet, as we said, that'll give the, the pilots in that base some time to, to wind their watch and evaluate, you know, their strategies and, and what's best for their families as they move forward. And, and to be clear, David, we don't know where the Airbus fleet will end up after it is ultimately reduced to the uh, 10 A321neos. So, you know, again, just reemphasize San Francisco may need to pivot to a Boeing base in the long term. And just to put a fine point on it, Will, when you say it's viable, I mean, you're talking about cost savings to the company to maintain the base, right? Yeah, I guess I did deal that kind of a glancing blow. But uh, the conclusion was that it... San Francisco operating as part of our base mix increases the overall block per duty and credit per duty, reduces average pairing lengths, and reduces soft time. It produces savings in our analysis. You know, and also there's ancillary uh, savings too, costs such as hotels, right? And they'll be operationally beneficial. And well, I know this has been really important to Ronan and, and Jim Tedford to make sure that we did our own research and and had a, you know could not just say that they should keep the base open or, or advocate for it, but that we have really data that that we know we're standing on solid ground when we make that claim. Correct. And as we said, we know that they're doing their own internal modeling, and whenever they finally conclude that modeling, it also provides us with a nice basis to kind of cross-check their math. But, you know, we made the point in that meeting very clearly, and I think Ronan drove it home really hard, that they need to provide clarity to the pilots in that base, that it's going to remain open, because that will certainly help not only the, uh, you know, the anxiety in that base for the pilots who are trying to plan their lives and, and their family life and their commutes and things like that, but, uh, you know, also that overall then when they want to be able to shift fleets and start to, to put the airplanes where the company thinks that they want them, that they will have an overall better outcome if the pilots in that base have some certainty about the future of their base. Mm -hmm. I, I really do need to thank everybody involved for that hard work. I'm proud of that that hard work that the team did. Um, the report itself is, is actually quite lengthy and will be briefed in detail to the MEC, but I think that those pieces of the summary that um, that I read say it all. You know, and if the company comes to some different conclusion, as I said, we've we've got a basis now. We've got solid data to, to argue against their their conclusion if for some reason it's different. All right. Well, well, I know there's plenty more to talk about and, and we'll be communicating more with the pilots in the near future. But for now, let's uh, wrap it up as you normally do with a, a closing thought. And just to start us off, maybe you could summarize what you've been hearing from the pilots over the last week. Yeah, over the last week, I think there were a lot of pilots reacting to the letter that we received from the VP of Labor. And I, I kind of want to characterize it as that the MEC, your officers, and everybody in here who's been so immersed in, in planning that I guess our reaction is that while disappointing, you know, we're kind of nonplussed by it. Um, we've got a clear plan. We've got reasonable goals and expectations. And we've always been fully prepared to shift our work in whatever manner we have to in order to achieve those goals. Yeah, exactly. As frustrating as this was, it was a very expected 
threat. I mean, I think of it as, as a flight plan, you know, it's, you, you look ahead and you know what threats are, are in your route, a thunderstorm. And, and as you approach it, it's no surprise and you deal with it. And that's what's happening here. So as, as upsetting and aggravating as it is, I, I hope people understand that we're ready for it and we have a plan that we're going to act on. And, and, and in fact, getting here has been a result of exactly that following our own plan. Yeah. And if anything, maybe the only shock or maybe disappointment is the better way to put it, is that uh, we saw that type of a letter go out as early as it did. I -hmm. think we had anticipated that it would be much later in the game before the company expressed frustration and tried to communicate directly with the pilots. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, it's one of the reasons I brought up that that notion that management will often uh, create that false narrative between growth and and making gains to the contract because I was expecting it. I, I wasn't expecting it so soon after the uh, we we published that that podcast episode. Yep, and you know to be very very clear when you talk about kind of closing thoughts, um, I will reemphasize that we've heard loud and clear from the pilots. And, you know, we too are unhappy about the pace of negotiations and obviously share your frustrations. Uh, The transparent negotiations that are underway carry with them the reality that emotions are going to rise, but we're still committed to that that transparency. And so, you know, to the pilots, obviously, we always say stay informed and read the MEC updates, continue to listen to the podcasts. Um, We completely understand your expectations and needs, and we're not going to settle for anything short of that. You'll get no spin from us. And uh, to kind of put a point on what Chris was alluding to, if we haven't agreed to a company proposal or you saw something in that letter that was upsetting, you know, it's because it fell short of what you've told us is important, plain and simple. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that old adage that my MEC speaks for me, I think really applies in that scenario. You're making those decisions because it's what you've heard from the pilot group. Right. Clearly, and and I can say this, and I say this at many of the the cookout tour dates when I'm approached by pilots, that in my time in union work, you know, I guess going back to membership committee work, you know, 12 years ago or whatever it was, that I've never seen a pilot group so aligned in their expectations, whether you're junior or you're senior, you're an Airbus pilot, a Boeing pilot, Anchorage-based or Seattle-based or LA-based or San Francisco-based, I mean, you name it, the pilot's expectations are so clearly aligned. I mean, it is not difficult to decide what it is that we need to be doing at the table to achieve a ratifiable agreement. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, we've got the pilots to thank for that, for participating in the polling and the surveys and contacting their reps and showing up to the West Coast cookout tour and and all those sorts of things. So we have a great deal of confidence that that the negotiating committee and the MEC is, in fact, speaking for the pilots. But I want to make sure that the pilots believe that as well. Don't just take our word for it. So if you have any doubts, call your rep and and ask them, what do you think about X, Y and Z? And um, make sure that they're carrying your voice and, and make sure that your voice is, is known to them. Um, that That's uh, how it works. Yep. And I can say that that process works, not just on the weekly MEC calls in the you know ongoing phone calls that I take from each of the reps, but most certainly uh, when we all get together for an MEC meeting. Will, I, I just want to be clear and make sure no one misunderstands what you and I have been saying just now. Yes, we were expecting this. Yes, it's, it's, we have a plan for it, 
but that does not mean we're accepting a slow roll or a delay tactic on management's part, right? Can you speak to that just oh, a bit? Oh, yeah. And I said those very, very words at labor leader meetings and in direct conversations with senior management that we will not accept delay. There is no need, no reason to accept a delay in delivering you know, on the pilot's needs, objectives, and goals. It's, I've said it before. We're pitching straight down the plate here. It's very easy to understand where we need to be. And as I said, you know, the MEC is going to be meeting early to, to work on and approve the plan that aggressively advances the pilot's interests. And, and we do understand and know that many of you are angry and anxious to communicate your dissatisfaction. As we said, the best avenue for that is through your elected representatives. But uh, we will have an opportunity as well to bring your voice directly to uh, senior management Will, one last question before I let you go here. When you see such a public dismissal of the pilot priorities as we did with that email from the VP of Labor, what does that tell you? Well, I, th I think it just amplifies the reason that we've told you for months that we need to stay unified, the pilots need to stay engaged. And it, it kind of painted a clear picture of what we're up against, and when I use that we're up against, I do mean we. It's this entire pilot group. They're just getting a little bit of an inside glance to what we deal with day in and day out here at the MEC level in terms of advocating their interests. But for us to be successful, it's uh, as we say in the slogan, we will get there together. Stay unified, stay engaged, stay involved, keep talking to your reps. All right, thank you, Will, and thank you, Chris. And thank you for listening. This has been another episode of the Alaska Pilots Podcast. I'm your host, Strategic Communications Chairman, Captain David Campbell. 